Oh, okay. <laughs> You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Thank you for listening to Hold That Thought. I'm Claire Gowan. This Valentine's Day season, we bring you a story of love, economics, and frogs. Our guest is Paolo Natanzan. Thanks for having me. I'm Paolo Natanzan. I'm in economics. I'm an assistant professor in economics at WashU. You might be wondering what frogs and economics could possibly have to do with love. Stick with us for a minute, because this unlikely story begins in an unlikely place. An airplane. A while back, Natanzan was on a work trip, flying from Montreal to Philadelphia. And by pure chance, sitting right next to me was somebody I knew before. And uh, this poor guy had the window seat and I had the aisle seat. So on the flight back, I just told him about my research for an hour and a half. Um, He very patiently listened and asked uh, follow-up questions. The story easily could have ended there. No love, no frogs. But then, a couple weeks later, he sends me an email out of the blue and says, I thought of you. Um, your work applies to frogs and send me a link to this article on science. Oddly enough, this is where the love comes in. For the paper in science, biologists basically put female frogs in a scientific version of the TV show The Bachelorette. The female had to choose between multiple options for a mate. And while Natanzan isn't particularly interested in frog romance, he is very interested in decision-making. Any economics paper has some model of how the individuals make decisions, how consumers and firms choose or make economic choices. So the frogs in the experiment weren't making choices about what to buy or what to invest in, but they were making a very important choice. The frog experiment is unique because uh, uh, sort of mating choices are, for many people, the gold standard. There's a lot of pressure to get those choices right. And if you think of millions of years of brutal evolutionary uh, uh, pressure, uh, you would expect that the choices look very rational. Whether or not humans behave rationally when choosing romantic partners, well, that's a topic for a different episode. With the frogs, however, the researchers were able to set up a series of experiments to really test this. Given a set of specific circumstances, would the lady frogs behave rationally and choose the best mate? Here's how the experiment worked. So in this experiment, the female frogs are put in a chamber with uh, loudspeakers. Loudspeakers because in the wild, the female frogs choose their mates largely based on the suitor's calls how they sound. In the initial experiment, they had two options. Uh, One of them was uh, faster, and the other one was more attractive. The biologists knew that both of these things are important. One, how fast or quickly the frogs called, and two, the so-called attractiveness of the call, basically the frequency. So the question was, which quality is more enticing for the bachelorettes? It turns out that uh, the majority of the frogs in the initial experiment chose the faster, the faster call rate. So faster call rate equals better success with the lady frogs. But there's a twist. Enter frog bachelor number three. In another round of experiments, they put the same initial two options and a third option 
that was attractive, but it was way, way slower. We already know that frogs prefer fast calls. This new guy's call was super slow. So in this situation, the fast calling frog should have nothing to worry about, right? Wrong. In the presence of this third very, very slow, attractive, but very, very slow option, all of a sudden a majority of the female frogs reversed their choice and instead of going for the fast option, went for the attractive option. So the females did not pick their first choice, the fast frog, or the newcomer, the slow frog. Instead, they picked option number two, the same frog that they rejected in the first round. What's going on here? These frogs turn out to fall for a phenomenon that is well known with people, which is the decoy effect. The decoy effect. Here, we're back to economics for a bit. Basically, the decoy effect is the situation we just described with the frogs. When the introduction of a third option, the decoy, causes people or animals to change their mind. So decoy effects were found uh, by marketing uh, scientists in the 1980s. Who found that the decoy effect could influence all sorts of purchases. Cars, uh, um, beers, brands of toothpaste, and, and so on. Since then, the decoy effect has been found in many other settings. So people exhibit that kind of puzzling behavior in voting, in medical decision-making, in financial investments. So it seems to be something very general. It's very easy to come up with an experiment in which people and animals exhibit the decoy effect. What's hard is to have a good explanation for why it happens. So that's where your theory comes in. Yes. So it turns out I've been working on this mathematical model of individual decision making for a while. In case you didn't catch that last part, for some time, Natenzan has been working on a mathematical solution to this puzzle, creating a model of individual decision making that helps explain the decoy effect. That's why his colleague on the plane passed along the paper about frogs. The data about frog mating choice offered a way to test the theory. Without going into all the math behind it, here's how the model works. So the, the model has, has three components or, or tries to make choices realistic in three ways. So the first element is the fact that when you make choices, you don't have all the information. So you enter a store and you're going to buy a new uh, dishwashing machine and you're going to make a decision with, with a, in, within a certain amount of time and with a certain amount of information. You're not going to uh, uh, investigate in detail every possible feature that may be relevant to you. Right? The same thing with these poor frogs. They're, they're making this very important decision for them evolutionarily, which is a mating choice based on a few minutes of the sound of their call uh, in an environment that is complex, in the dark, under pressure, because there's predators lurking around. So it's uh, uh, natural to assume that even if they have a very rational preference, because they don't have all the information they do to make sure they make the best choice, sometimes they're gonna end up making a mistake. This idea of having incomplete information is called limited sampling. Now onto the next element of the model. The second element is the effect of similarity over how often you make a mistake. Basically, this is the idea that it's easier to compare things that are similar especially if the value of the two things is pretty close. 
when you have a small gap in the value of the alternatives, but you make all of the other features uh, um, the same, in some sense, everything that was confusing about this choice cancels out and you see the difference in value very clearly. Imagine you're picking out a washing machine. It's probably easy to tell a really terrible one from a really high-end one, but if the products are pretty close in value, similar products are much easier to compare. So if two washing machines have all the same features, but one is, let's say, much more energy efficient, that benefit stands out. This idea of similarity is the second point of the model. On to number three. The last element that enters the theory is that you, since you have limited sampling and some options that are on the table are easier to compare than others, in my model, this decision maker does the best possible course of action given these limitations. So according to the model, people or frogs make the best choice available to them given the circumstances. But remember our dear lovesick frogs. Because of the decoy effect, their choice appears to be irrational. That is, before we think about the effects of limited sampling and similarity. Think back to frog suitor number three, the decoy. The decoy and the attractive alternative are much closer to each other in every dimension. In other words, they were similar to each other. And similar choices, as we just heard, are easier to compare. The decoy and the fast-talking frog number one, on the other hand, were less similar, meaning they were harder to compare. So. In this circumstance, what would you do? Which frog would you choose? Well, it turns out that choosing among the options that you can compare very clearly is optimal. The way the math works out, and we'll get more into the detail of that in a second here, by sticking with the more similar, easier choice, the frogs are actually making the best choice available to them. The best analogy to explain why Natenzon has found is through the Monty Hall problem. Maybe you've heard of this before, I had not. Monty Hall was host of the long-running game show Let's Make a Deal. In the show, a contestant was presented with three doors. And behind one of the doors, is a, there's a prize. So here's how it goes. You initially, you can choose a door. Okay, so suppose that I initially, I put my hand on door number one. You choose one door, but you don't open it yet. Monty Hall then opens one of the two remaining doors. Because Monty knows where the prize is, Monty can always open a door that has nothing behind it. Then comes the interesting part. You now have two choices, the door you picked originally and the one remaining door that Monty did not open. Monty then asks you, which door do you choose? Do you want to switch doors? And the optimal response is, yes, you should always switch doors. This is a little hard to get your head around, at least for me. There are two options available, 50-50. You've already picked one, so why would it matter if you switch? Wouldn't the odds be the same either way? Not exactly. If you think about it carefully, you'll realize that if you stick with the original option, you will win this show on average one third of the time. Why? Because you have to get lucky and initially pick uh, the door that had the prize behind. That happens only one third of the time. 
if you, instead of sticking with your initial choice, you always switch doors, you will win two-thirds of the time. Why? Because the only way of not winning when you switch doors is if your original choice was correct. Which again, only happens one-third of the time. This brings us back to the juicy love story. Though it didn't appear so at first, by switching her original choice, our frog bachelorette is mathematically making a good choice for her love life. The same way that optimal behavior is switching doors in the Monty Hall problem, the frogs seem to be doing the optimal behavior of favoring the alternatives that are easier to compare in this data. In the Monty Hall problem, it's easy to compare the two remaining doors after your initial choice because, well, Monty opens one of those doors. You know what's there. For the frogs, it's easiest to compare the two attractive options. Even though the fast-talking frog is appealing, he's still only going to be the best choice one out of three times. But wait a second. The Monty Hall problem is hard to understand even for humans. Are bachelorette frogs smarter than humans? Natenzon's guess is no, but as a species, they have been playing it for a very long time. So suppose you put uh, the frogs to play the Monty Hall problem for two million years of brutal natural selection, any frog that for any reason starts switching doors all the time is gonna start winning or mating with the best uh, uh, choice two thirds of the time. And after two million years, you know, only those frogs are supposed to be around. They don't have to be that sophisticated, but their behavior seems to be solving a, a very sophisticated problem. So there you have it. Rationality has been restored to the frogs. We wish them and all of our listeners the best of luck in finding and celebrating love this Valentine's Day. As for Natanzan, he's just thrilled that these frogs offer such a clear example of how his model works. When I clicked on the Excel spreadsheet that is publicly available on the website of Science Magazine, and I sort of looked at it for a few seconds, and I saw how rich the data was, the fact that they did all the pairwise comparisons, and then I realized that the data revealed that a frog A and frog C were more similar, then, you know, I got the goosebumps. I thought, I, I had this definition, this formal definition of revealed similarity uh, um, that I wrote years ago, and I had never found a, such a beautiful example, such crystal clear example where the data sort of tells you what's going on. So that was, that was a very exciting moment. At that point, I thought, okay, that's it. I'm going to have to analyze the data and write about frogs. <laughs> Many thanks to Paolo Natanzan for joining Hold That Thought. You can find many more ideas to explore through our archive on holdthatthought.wustl.edu. There you can also find links to subscribe. Thank you for listening.